Welcome to the FinTech Factor, the podcast for FinTech operators and executives to understand what it takes to stand out in a crowded industry. I'm Alex Johnson. Today's episode is about the fraud and identity space. To succeed in financial services, you have to get good at answering three questions about every prospective customer that you might work with. The first question, do you want to do business with this person, is a risk versus reward question. Fundamentally, what you're asking is, am I going to make money by working with this person? In lending, tools like the FICO score help you make a good decision when it comes to this question. The second question, are you legally allowed to do business with this person, is obviously a compliance question. In most parts of the world, financial services providers are legally barred from working with certain people and groups and are thus required to check and see if a new prospective customer is someone they are allowed to do business with. This mostly involves checking people's names against established watch lists, like the OFAC list. However, both of these questions, do I want to do business with this person, and am I allowed to do business with this person, can only be answered after you've answered the first and most important question, is this person who they say they are? Now, if we look at the entire history of financial services through the lens of this third question, is this person who they say they are, we can divide up that history into two basic eras. The first era, which lasted for about 2,000 years, revolved around financial services that were primarily delivered in person. In this era, answering the question, is this person who they say they are, was relatively straightforward. Either it was someone you knew, or they had someone to vouch for them who you knew and trusted already, or you would check their government-issued ID documents and make sure that the picture matched their face. Now, fraud happened, for sure, but it was fairly rare and it wasn't terribly efficient to do at scale. The second era, which has only been going on for the last couple of decades, is very different. This era, our current era, revolves around financial services that are primarily delivered through digital channels. Answering the question, is this person who they say they are, is both incredibly difficult, because you don't get to see them or interact with them in person, and incredibly important, because it's now efficient and highly lucrative to commit fraud at a large scale, thanks to the internet. So we are, as an industry, still searching for the best way to answer this question in this era. Now, in today's episode, I talk with Jack Alton, CEO of NeuroID, which is a fraud management and identity solution provider with a unique take on how to solve this problem. We talk about how banks and fintech companies have traditionally approached fraud management in a digital-first world, the shortcomings of that approach, and the benefits of taking an intentionally different strategy for helping companies close that gap. So now, without further ado, I present The Fintech Factor. Jack Alton, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for the invite, Alex. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's jump right into the problem. Um, Neural ID, what problem are you guys focused on solving? We are tackling what we call the digital identity crisis. It's a huge problem. We're a category creator and we're bringing a new solution to a problem we've been struggling with for the past couple of decades. Awesome. Okay. Well, so let's put some uh, meat on the bone in terms of that problem. I, I like the way you frame it as a digital identity crisis. Can you share some additional sort of numbers or information? Like what is the digital identity crisis and what is the scale of the crisis? Yeah, I think uh, if your identity hasn't been stolen, it's probably because you don't know about it at this point in time. Right. Uh, you know, if we went back a decade and 
somebody said their identity was stolen, it would be, you know, front page news and the original breaches that occurred got a lot of publicity. And I think now it's become standard. In fact, I think since uh, 2013, there's something in the order of 70 billion records that have been stolen or compromised. And when we, we look at the digital identity crisis, that was essentially the fuel. That was the raw materials to start doing identity fraud at scale. And that gave folks access as, as easy as going to the dark web, buying credentials and starting to build your fraud operation. So that's the problem we're, we're focused on. As I mentioned, you know, it's it's been getting worse uh, and it's continuing to grow. So we're bringing a new technology to uh, to help fight that problem. Got it. So let's dig into that for a second. So when you say that the sort of compromise of uh, personally identifiable information has sort of been the fuel to be able to do this type of fraud at scale. Like to me, one of the easiest examples to kind of grok and and wrap your heads around in that respect is synthetic identity fraud, right? And so to sort of use your example, and for those who don't know who may be listening, the basic way that synthetic identity fraud works is it relies on the ability to seed information into a trusted third-party source of identity data, in this case, the credit bureaus, right? And so a fraudster will apply for credit. They may use uh, snippets of information that are gathered from data breaches that are easily accessible and really rather inexpensive to purchase on the dark web. And then they'll use that as a way to get themselves inserted into the credit bureau, right? Because whenever you apply for a loan, the first step is the lender submits that identity, whatever is presented at the time, to the credit bureaus to check if you have a credit file. And of course, in the case of most of these synthetic identities, when they start, they don't have any data associated with them. There is no history of Alex Johnson living in North Dakota at an address that I don't live in existing at the credit bureaus. But by doing that, they also create a record at the credit bureaus, right? And so this is an example of that identity information being seeded into a new place. And I think the the challenge to your point about this problem growing in scale is because all this information is out there and it can be recombined in these different ways and it can be seeded in all of these sort of third-party places, suddenly you end up in a place, fast forward five years, 10 years, 15 years, we've been dealing with synthetic identity fraud for a while, Now there are all these fully-fledged identity credentials sitting inside of the credit bureaus that are not legitimate. They're controlled by fraudsters. They're controlled by large fraud rings or operations that do this type of deception at scale. And it's pretty convincing to the lender that pulls that information, correct? It is. You know, it's not just a great story. And that was, uh, well, depending on how you look at it, a great story. But you did a great job of, I should say, unpacking that. The, the stat that really brings it home for me is the fact that, well, have you guess, the average American's FICO score is 690. Take a guess at what the average synthetic ID score is today. Oh, God. So the FICO, the average FICO score for a synthetic identity in the credit bureaus, it has to be higher, right? It has to be what, 700, 710? 742. Oh my God. 742. So if you wanted a snapshot to, to wonder whether this digital identity crisis was hyperbole or it was real, we have it now. And you did a, a really great job of kind of walking everyone through how we got where we got. And what we're trying to do is, I think that's apparent to everybody that's doing business online. They know just how daunting a task it is. 
yeah. and that they're up against more and more sophisticated rings and bot attacks. And that's where, you know, we see press release after press release where they go back out to that fact-based data that you outlined. Mm-hmm. They get a positive score and say, yeah, Alex is Alex. We want to do business with him. Mm-hmm. Only to find out that that fact-based historical information has been compromised and it actually gave them a false reading that this was, uh, in fact, a, a customer we wanted to do business with. So um, take all the challenges of marketing digitally online, building a business online, and then now try sorting through at scale whether or not someone is who they say they are. And you've got a digital identity crisis on your hands. No, yeah, that's that's absolutely true, right? And I, I want to talk about and you've already sort of hinted at the the way that, that banks and fintechs deal with this problem, right? Because obviously, everyone who's been in the space for even a minute knows this is a problem. The you know savvier operators know as soon as they turn the lights on and they open up a new digital application, they're going to get hit with fraud. But I want to talk about, you know, historically, the way in which we've dealt with fraud in financial services, because obviously, are you who you say you are is like the foundational question upon which pretty much everything else rest inside of financial services, both from a compliance perspective, but also from a risk and a profitability perspective. You know, since we've started digitizing financial services and we've taken uh, an interaction that used to happen in the branch, right, right. which by definition is difficult to spoof because ha- someone has to walk into that building. Uh, it's high risk because, you know, <laughs> the odds of having the cops called on you if you're impersonating someone else is actually decently high. And I think maybe most importantly, it just doesn't scale very well, right? Like you have to go in for every single application that you might be trying to commit fraud on. So the branch in a lot of ways screened out a lot of potential fraud and just didn't make it viable. But since we've transitioned to online applications, the whole model and business model around fraud has changed. So can you kind of walk us through the sort of traditional way that banks and fintechs dealing with fraud in a digital environment try to sort of stack up solutions and, and try to screen out of as much of it as they can. You bet. And we'll, we'll get into what we're doing now, but I think it is worth going back and looking at, you know, how did we get where we are today? Part of it is that um, if you think about the digital channel, it's anonymous. So if you're a bank or you're a merchant onboarder, instead of a welcoming experience that you might see in a bank branch office, they almost have their defensive posture up knowing how much compromised information is there. And you essentially go through a waterfall of checks, almost like you're kind of guilty until proven innocent. Okay, did the FICO score come back right? Was their email associated with any other fraudulent transactions? Did they hide their IP address? All these tells that they're trying to kind of reverse engineer into through these fact-based historical sources of data to try to assess, should I open an account with Alex or not? And that served digital lenders and digital financial companies for a period of time. And then as these breaches occurred, it just put more and more pressure on looking backward at data to predict whether or not somebody is going to be a good customer going forward or fundamentally if they even were who they say they were. So it was It was largely a waterfall process that was built on pulling different pieces of third-party data to try to stitch together an assessment on identity. Got it. Got it. Okay. And then just to sort of put a little bit more color around that, you know, as you're saying, it sort of seems like the more data breaches that happen, the more fraudsters sort of figure out how to navigate around these things, right? And so I, I do like the analogy of a waterfall because 
you're always adding additional things right. into the waterfall. You're adding additional things to your stack. And the hope is that it's going to provide one more signal that's a little bit different yet complementary to what you're already doing. So it's going to catch a little bit, particularly as fraudsters start to navigate around the obstacles that you're putting in front of them. And much like, you know, layering Swiss cheese, I suppose the theory is if you put enough layers of Swiss cheese on top of each other, the holes won't line up and you sort of <laughs> have something you can, you can stop people, right? But the thing I also want to make sure that we're sort of clear on from a waterfall perspective is there's a cost associated with all of it, right? And, you know, I think a lot of times fintech companies in particular think of cost as more of a customer acquisition problem. So, you know, hey, can I go out into the market, convince the customers that I want to apply for my product? And once they've applied, like, that's where the cost kind of stops. Now, if you've worked in banking, you know, that's really just where your costs begin because... The whole process of determining, is this person who they say they are? Am I allowed to do business with them? Do I want to do business with them? Answering those questions comes with pulling all of these different data sources, right? And so when we talk about it from a waterfall strategy, part of it is asking for the right pieces of information to get from that proven, uh, starting guilty and being proven innocent, getting to innocent as quickly as you can and in a way that reduces friction for good customers but it's also in terms of keeping your costs relatively low, right? And so yeah. when you think about those waterfall processes, you might pull a FICO score or sort of a third-party data identity score or some of the attributes that you're collecting for the application like IP address or email and trying to match those up. And then later in the waterfall process, if you're getting to some red flags or some yellow flags, you might throw a few additional steps into the waterfall that are a little more friction-filled and a little bit uh, more expensive, perhaps, for the financial institution. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's largely been the game is the way that the friction mm -hmm. with the certainty, right? How do I adopt a process? How do I use these legacy technologies to try to recreate the experience I used to have when I did business, if we're talking banking, in branch? Yep. And so it's really been a function of let's throw the frictionless technologies first let's add additional friction at the cost or the opportunity cost of additional verification. Mm -hmm. And it's been a, a really expensive trade-off, as you mentioned, not only financially expensive, but when you look at, you know, we throw out this stat and, and it's hard to believe that in 2022, that most verticals are still at single digit conversion rates. So for every 10 people who start a digital process to open a new account, less than 10% of them make it all the way through. And some of them eject because of a poor experience. Some of them eject because of fear of being caught. Some of them eject because the friction that they were subjected to superseded the value, the ease of use for them. But at the end of the day, it's all been about trade-offs and they've been really expensive trade-offs, both financially. But if you think about that single digit conversion rate, it's not to your point, just a CAC problem of how much it costs to acquire a customer. If you're a bank and you fraudulently onboarded a customer and you have to go back and repair the credit of that person that you onboarded, what are the chances that customer is ever going to do business with you again for the rest of their life? And that, that has been stacking up for the last five to 10 years where we're just focused on the few that get through and improving the models a little bit to try to enhance our catch rate a little bit. And meanwhile, five, six, seven out of 10 of the people that have been coming to onboard 
are having such a bad experience that they may never come back to our brand again. That's, I think, the other side of the coin of the digital identity crisis, which is great customers that, because of our lack of visibility, have been subjected to a lot of friction that, that it will drive them away from brands forever. Right. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, just to put one final point on that, because I think it's really important, digitally speaking, in terms of incentives and behavior, your best customers and fraudsters act very similarly, right? And that's sort of a uh, unintuitive statement. But what I mean by that is that, you know, fraudsters have very little tolerance for friction because it's inefficient for them, right? And so that's the rationale for introducing additional friction into the account opening process is that you make it uh, not cost-effective for fraudsters to continue to try to wait through mm-hmm. it. They on to a softer target. But the flip side to it that you're kind of talking about is that when you're looking at sort of self-selection within the non-fraud consumer population, you're trying to figure out, hey, who are our best customers and how can we get them? You obviously want to get the customers that are going to be the lowest risk and the most profitable. The problem is, and I think this is particularly true today now that fintech has taken hold and consumers have so many options today and they know that, the best customers know that they have a tremendous amount of leverage right in the market. And so they know they're valuable. They know that their business is worth a lot to brands. And they have very little tolerance for friction, right? And so to your point, if you have a process that you've designed to give you some handle on how to manage fraud, it comes at the risk of that conversion rate problem. And the conversion rate problem isn't distributed equally. It hits your better potential customers harder, the ones that you're spending a lot of money to acquire, because they're the first ones out the door if the process is sticky. The ones that hang on and persist through a bad process tend to be the ones that don't have as many choices. And so even if they're not fraudsters, which they likely aren't because fraudsters don't have the same patience, they're likely going to be customers that from a performance perspective aren't at the top of your list as customers that you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just laid out the tug of war that's been going on inside large digital organizations for the last decade. Mm-hmm. And that is why is our strategy being driven by our chief risk officer, frankly, right? Right. Right. Uh, Why is she or he not able to open up the gates? Why can't they get the visibility that they need in order to allow us to deliver an experience, to deliver a product that's consistent with our brand, Mm -hmm. the way we used to do it in person or the way we aspire to do it as a digital-only company? And and that's the trade-offs. Those trade-offs have been going on not only inside the identity and fraud stack, but it now impacts marketing. It impacts product. It impacts everything. Full PL responsibility of the organization. And many organizations want to expand. They want to expand globally. They want to expand into other markets. And they simply just don't have the visibility and the tools to be able to do that in a way that doesn't completely wreck their financials. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let, that's a great point then for us to pivot to talk specifically about what you guys are doing. So I want to start with just like the elevator pitch. We're on a fast elevator in a tall building. You have 20 seconds before we get to our floor. What's the kind of basic pitch for what NeuroID from a kind of core technology product perspective does? What does it do? Yep. I think the easiest way to understand it is our technology reconnects the human on the other side of the screen with you as a business. So we do that by sitting seamlessly behind their input field. So as they're tapping, typing, and swiping, we're translating that uh, with about a decade of patented research into what we call the digital body language. And that way we can 
give those cues that you used to get when we did business in person. We can reveal those in a way that you can use those to give a fast track for your best customers and to apply friction to either bots or fraudsters that are trying to take you. Got it. Perfect. So to put that in a, uh, a branch-based analogy in the old world of thinking about how all this worked, if I'm a reasonably competent uh, loan officer who's alive and sitting at a desk, I'm going to be able to pick out pretty quickly when people walk in, that person doesn't have a face. That person is 10 feet tall. This person looks like a person, but then they sit down and they're acting really weird. They paused for a long time when I asked them this question, or as soon as I asked them the last three addresses they lived at, they gave me an instant answer where they gave all three of them at the same time. That's kind of weird. Like you as a human being have all of these sort of natural built-in abilities to sort of suss out strange behavior that might be indicative of a problem that can then trigger additional things that you're going to do later. And what you're saying is your technology essentially digitizes that and makes it available as a sort of service or a capability or a utility that sits behind the screen when people who, again, are coming in anonymously that these companies don't know, sits behind the screen and sort of evaluates their behaviors they're filling out an application. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really intuitive way to think about it. Yeah, if you're a reader, Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors of all time. He wrote a book called Blink. Mm-hmm. And the whole premise of the book was to basically bring forward what neuroscientists have known forever, which is that we are designed within 100 milliseconds to be able to pick up really strong signals on trustworthiness on genuine inflections of our voice or our body movements. When we moved online, we lost all of that. And I think we're now understanding just how important that was. So as we did business for thousands of years, we relied on on that to make business decisions. And when we moved online, it got very convenient. Forms were there. You could go away with paper. But what we're missing are all of those tells, all of those um, confidence and cues that in this case, what we're focused on is when you input your personal information, are you familiar with that or not? And we've got uh, over 30,000 Google Scholar citations for our work in human computer interaction, a decade of patented research. And what we found having sat behind nearly a half a billion digital onboarding journeys is that it's probably not hard to believe, but people that are who they say they are and are familiar with their personal information behave very differently than people who have stolen that information and are trying to deploy it at scale. Mm -hmm. They behave very differently than a bot that has been programmed to move through that information at scale. So we're giving uh, brands that visibility that they once used, their frontline, all their employees to be able to suss out with one JavaScript that collects no PII. We're able to do that, basically light up a new form of visibility into that digital onboarding experience that allows us to make way better decisions on who goes through more or less friction. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the phrase light up almost makes me think of like, I don't know, when the military invented radar or something. It's like, holy cow, like, look what we can see. It's <laughs> always out there and we knew it was out there intuitively, but we just couldn't quite measure it. I mean, it's such an interesting step change, right? In terms of what yeah. you can do. And I want to ask, I mean, on this podcast, one of the things we always try to focus on is, you know, the value of doing hard things, right? Mm -hmm. And 
I think become somewhat unintuitive and maybe maybe a little unsexy nowadays to like spend years trying to unlock one particular problem or thing that you're stuck on because we live in the age of like abundant infrastructure, right? You can spin something up on AWS immediately. You can get access to all of these open source machine learning models. Like there's all this stuff you can do that really doesn't take too much time to build and it is pretty easy. But my contention is that a lot of times the value ultimately comes out of these hard problems that we sort of spend maybe too long at the time, it seems, kind of banging our heads against and trying to figure out. So with Neural ID, the two that I want to hone in on, one is kind of a go-to-market question, which I'm going to save for a second. But the first one is a product question. So I think you just did a great job outlining like what your product does and what it looks for. It's measuring that computer-human interaction and that behavior. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of just give us a flavor for what it was like developing that core capability. I mean, I you mentioned all of the academic research that went into it and the Google Scholar citations and all of the patents. Like, There's probably a lot of frustrating, man, are we ever going to see the other end of the tunnel sort of work that went into the beginning of that. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we are super fortunate to have two of the brightest minds in the world that are our co-founders, Dr. Joe Valasetch and Dr. Jeff Jenkins, literally lead this field of work globally. They get asked to speak all over the world on their research, and it's obviously it's been cited. They had this notion that we could infer intent from how somebody moved a mouse or tapped a screen. And there was a lot of time, effort, and energy between that initial aha moment and where we are today, uh, which is now providing this for some of the largest brands in the world. When you talk about the hard things, I think for us, the hard things, the definition was the data science, the rigor. We came to market as a new source of data, as an input into those models that we talked about at the top of the call, where everyone's looking for a magic source of data that's going to somehow allow us to make better decisions in what we call the post-submit world. Once you click submit, Mm -hmm. Um, And the good news for us is uh, we had customers with very high bars for additional lift. And in most all cases, uh, we delighted them with a new source of data. But that required us to do outcome analysis, to run tests, to really interact very closely with our customer. And there were a lot of long nights and weekends where our team refused to give up and just kept cranking on the model till we could deliver the value. So Honestly, for me, as a non-data scientist, it was not my favorite portion of the company. But now I look at what stable underpinnings that's given us to be able to productize and mass productize the use for this into platforms and into upgrading products. And I think had we not done those hard things, had we not taken the time to validate the technology across multiple verticals, we wouldn't have the confidence in our technology and, and the accuracy for performance that we have today. Got it. Got it. So so to put a little context around that, because I think that's a, a great example and one that um, I, not being a data scientist myself either, I could imagine being pretty painful to just be like, come on, like we got to like get something <laughs> more out of this. Um, so it's basically that, you know, you're coming in, you have this sort of theory for what this new type of data or insight will deliver in terms of value for helping people understand intent and understanding how people are behaving when they're interacting with these digital applications. But fundamentally, like, this is an idea, it's not a reality. You have to sell this idea and you have to sell it to 
chief risk officers, right? And you have to sell it to the head of fraud management at uh, large banks or fintech companies or other sort of companies that are interacting with consumers digitally. And having sat in a few of those types of meetings in the past, one thing I've observed is that, um, and you kind of hinted at it before, they're tough customers, right? Like every day they're getting pitched new solutions that will add lift to what they're doing, right? And so they don't believe you when you say that because everyone says that. They want to test it. And when they test it, they want to be able to see a lift that you can show them that is distinct from the other ways that they're trying to detect bad intent and that is significant enough that it justifies an investment in adding you to the stack, which is not an easy thing to do. So just to make sure I'm clear on this, the idea is that in training the model, the pressure for like getting to the most sort of insight out of that model and really like pushing this data as far as you could came from the fact that like, we got to show lift, we got to come back to these guys with like, an ability to say adding us to this stack is a good thing to do. Is that a fair way to summarize that? Absolutely. I mean, that's the path they took for every other input that's in their model today. It served them well. They stacked them on top of one another and and over time created the predictive model that they have today. So yeah, it was an arduous process. And as a CEO, I guess the things that, that challenged me with this process wasn't that I wondered if our team could deliver on it. Sure. It was the fact that it took a long time Right. Uh, waiting for outcomes took a long time. And ultimately, the value was in the hands of our customer. We couldn't go implement it for them. They had to get the resources to do it. The analysis had to be done by them as to what kind of lift it provided. So it, it just felt like we weren't really in control of our own destiny. We were met with a great deal of enthusiasm. Many of our customers had tried to derive some kind of meaning from behavior. But in all cases, they found it to be a very noisy signal and one that oftentimes, you know, had them heading down the wrong path. So they were open to it, but that bar was really high and there was a lot of vendors that were already in there. And some of the nuanced value of behavior wasn't really picked up in those models that I would say had more blunt instruments involved that fraud catch rate superseded the value of friction. So that was kind of summarizing the hard stuff we did to, to come in as a new source of data. Yeah, that makes sense, right? And I, I think that's a good point you bring up about um, the sort of fraud catch rate, right? Like you're pitching it to the head of risk. You're pitching it to the data scientists that work for the head of risk. Like they have an objective in mind, which is reduce risk. And like not that yeah. they don't totally care or are aware of friction, but it's not their primary objective. And And to your point, from a blunt instrument perspective, like, Models are built to optimize an outcome, right? And so if you have this outcome in mind, that's what you're going to do. And I think what I hear you saying is that behavior, while useful, is also nuanced in a way that um, it's not just detecting signs of uh, fraudulent intent. It's detecting a bunch of stuff. And those signals are useful in lots of different ways. So the second thing I wanted to ask you about, and it relates not so much to product, but to distribution, is a problem I see a lot in the the fraud management uh, space from a vendor perspective, which is that yeah, I think you did a really good job of describing this stack of solutions that exists. And every chief risk officer or fraud department has their stack. They always are evaluating new things. And the question is like, do we add it to the stack? If so, where? Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the incremental friction? How does it impact our model? What's the KS value? All that kind of stuff. And fundamentally, that's A, a really hard sale. 
But B, the other thing I've observed is that um, it doesn't tend to last forever, right? And so looking at sort of the history of the last, say, 15, 20 years, really since we've been doing digital fraud management, what I've observed is that there are a lot of companies that come in as a point solution provider trying to get into that stack. We have a new data source. We have a new model. We have a new way of detecting this thing. Fraudsters have adapted, and so have we. And here's the newest mousetrap that you have to have. And if they're successful, they sell their way into the stack. Usually what happens is once someone has that idea, suddenly a bunch of other people have that idea, they come into it. Suddenly there's a lot of competition for who has the best version of that mousetrap, gets a little bit commoditized. Maybe the fraud sort of conditions in the environment evolve a little bit. So that signal you're providing while useful isn't like the most useful thing now. The the lift is a little smaller as it uh, gets a little older. And I think what a lot of providers do when they get to that stage is they sort of pivot to trying to be more of an orchestration provider rather than a point solution. So they kind of say, yeah, you know, you can use us for getting access to this data point. But really, now that we're in your stack, you should use us to sort of orchestrate that whole waterfall process. And you can see the value of sort of pivoting in that direction, right? Because we're now giving you this orchestration platform from the vendor's perspective, like that's sticky because if you're doing the orchestration, they have to use you. You have all these different data sources plugged into what you're doing. You can start to do modeling and other things on top of it to help them. And fundamentally, you're becoming part of like the bank or fintech company's infrastructure, not just an input into that infrastructure. And so when I was thinking about Neural ID, and I've, you know, Disclosure, known you guys for a while, and um, Jack and the NeuroID team are based in uh, Whitefish, Montana, which is beautiful. Maybe not quite as beautiful as Bozeman, I would argue, but like very, very nice. <laughs> Careful, man. I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of, of Whitefish. So uh, we have that sort of Montana connection. But, you know, watching you guys, just from the outside, I would have predicted that a similar pivot would have happened at some point, right? Because mm-hmm. there's only so long that you can kind of try to smash your way into that stack and sort of become a part of that waterfall before a natural pivot to like being a platform starts to sort of maybe look like the right move, you guys did something different though. So I'm wondering if you can kind of characterize the thinking there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, if you think about the digital identity crisis and if we believe our technology is going to help solve it, you have to think about how do you distribute it? How do you get it out? For the past five and a half, six years, we've gone one customer at a time going through the process we talked about Mm-hmm. and delivering tremendous value for our customers. However, if we look at, okay, that's some number of a large enterprise customers, what about the rest of the world? What about the platforms? What about the different geographies that are out there? How do we get this technology out? And so we we thought the world probably has enough platforms, right? We probably have enough platforms. We have kind of what I call the API infrastructure is out there. The plumbing has already been built. And a lot of the right partners have been plugged into the back of these platforms. But what's been missing is the instrumentation platform. Hmm. So rather than following that path and becoming a platform ourselves and becoming another platform that has more differentiation, we felt like our path for getting the technology out, solving the digital identity crisis, was to go instrument those platforms and bring behavior to the platform and take the platform that's been built and make the platform better. Go to a legacy product um, that's in the fraud or identity stack and add behavior to it and make that product better. That allows us to get into the rivers and lakes of distribution out there that allow us to really diffuse the technology and not just allow the biggest brands in the world 
to capture this value, but for them to capture it and for them to be able to push it down to all of their customers that are struggling with the same visibility issue that that they have. Got it. Got it. And I would think that the one part of that strategy, which is very smart, I would think would be the ability to sort of present behavior as not exclusively a signal for post-submit, correct? Yeah. So the, the world we look at is there's a post-submit world, which is what we described at the top of the call, which is once an applicant comes in, they click submit, they go into all the historical data sources, to try to assess if the identity is good or not, and they want to do business with them. What we have done is essentially taken behavior and moved it to the very front, to the top of the funnel, to the top of the journey, so that it can begin to assess how the crowd is behaving and how the applicant is behaving, so that by the time we get to the platform, they know we can use behavior to direct customers that are genuine, Mm -hmm. that interact with their identity as though they say they are. We can, for the first time now, create fast-track paths. VIP pass for customers that we want to give a better experience for because we got a look early on that said, hey, this is Alex. Alex is behaving like it's Alex. Let's give him a path of least less friction. Conversely, if behavior reveals that someone's moving at three times the speed of a human mm-hmm. or they never make a mistake uh, or they're filling everything out in perfect order like a bot or a machine, then we are going to flag that and allow that platform to use the appropriate vendor on the backside to to step that person up from a verification standpoint. So it's really putting a set of eyes up front on top of funnel to be able to direct the use of all those platforms that have been built and all those products that have been built. Right. Got it. That makes sense. And I think one thing you you touched on briefly that I want to follow up on is the crowd level view, right? And so again, sort of hearkening back to our sort of branch world versus post-branch world that we're now operating in. In a branch world, it's not as if 10 million people can show up at your branch at the same time and all submit an application for a loan, right? Like just like logistically speaking, not possible. The entire like area around the branch would shut down. The whole city would shut down. The branch couldn't let all the people in at the same time. Like just, it's a stupid thing to even talk about because like the analogy doesn't even make sense, but it's relevant because in a digital environment, going back to your earliest point, we can orchestrate these large scale fraudulent attacks, right? Like fraudsters Mm -hmm. have the a legion of different identities that they can use. They have bots that they can use to execute the sort of application process. And they can hit companies that are making their services available digitally en masse, right? In these mm-hmm. large groupings. And I think it's a really important kind of analogy to use between the branch and sort of post-branch worlds because we're not, I don't think, from a fraud and identity perspective, trained to think about that threat, right? Because it never would have happened in the real world. So like right. digitally how do we think about that? But what I hear you saying is that from a behavior standpoint, if you sit at the the top of that waterfall, so to speak, and you're, you have eyes on this process pre-submit while someone is filling out an application, you can give signals to the, Mm -hmm. the institution that's using your services or the platform that's ingesting these services that, Hey, the overall type of person that's coming in right now or the scale of applications that are coming in, the behavior associated with them is out of whack from what we might think. So it's not just that there are some fraudsters in this group of people applying right now, which is always going to be true. It's that there's a lot of them or it seems to be happening on a recurring basis. You can look at the crowd. Yeah, it's back to that visibility issue. 
one of the key learnings we had from all of the half a billion digital onboarding journeys and interactions with our customers was that every time we would show them our dashboard that would show how their customers were behaving as they were onboarding, they would get closer to the Zoom screen, they would want more information, they would bring a broader group of, of decision makers to the table. It became more than a fraud or identity issue. It, it brought product and other key players into bear. And essentially what the crowd level visibility did is took them from guessing and wondering and sleeping with one eye shut, wondering when the next fraud ring or bot attack was going to have happen to a visual representation of the crowd, as well as proactive monitoring and alerting. And that combination really represents our flagship product today. Our, it's called Crowd Alert. And for the first time, brands have proactive protection and peace of mind for if the composition of the crowd changes, we're going to alert them. We're going to send that risky population over to them so that they can keep the door wide open for their good customers while dealing with that particular attack without it impacting the rest of the organization. And the reason we created this product is I was on the phone just recently. You know, We had seen evidence that top of funnel attacks, fraud rings and bot attacks post-pandemic were outpacing the onesie twosie fraud by a factor of 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. And we started talking to our customers and we found one customer has over 100 million visits per year, 30 million signups, tremendous volume. This particular individual said that top of funnel attacks were up 300% year over year. And the impact of those attacks internally were massive. They said that in the first 24 hours, they can catch about 40% of the fraud. And in the first seven days, they can catch about 70% of the fraud. So it sends every time there's a velocity spike in in the kind of post-submit stack, it sends them on this mission to try to figure out, is this good traffic? Is this bad traffic? Should we be concerned? Should we be popping corks and celebrating? It again comes back down to that lack of visibility. So monitoring the crowd, visualizing the crowd, is one of the unique things that we bring now to market that that is really easy for both platforms and products to integrate in and expand the value of their product today. Yeah, I love that. I love that visual of like inside a company without this level of visibility. You have, you know, the marketing department who's watching the campaign that they ran and it's like, look at this traffic. This is amazing. They're popping champagne and they're celebrating. And then like one floor up, there's uh, security (laughs) or fraud management or risk. And they're going, oh my God, like the world is ending. We have to get to the bottom of this. So like being able to give a clear signal that's comprehensive and that covers all the different types of behavior that people are looking for, good and bad, I could see would be just a really useful signal. And again, going to the waterfall point, the earlier you're getting that signal, the more intelligent and more, uh, I guess, kind of considered you can be in terms of what interventions you do, where you send different segments of the population. And you can be much more sort of dynamic and responsive to that as opposed to trying to spend seven days getting to the bottom of what just happened. Yeah, it's a, it's a good representation when we say it's no longer just a fraud problem. There's definitely the tug of wars change as volumes and velocities go through inside the organization. But I, I love that visual. Right. No, absolutely. Um, all right. So I want to end with just uh, picking your brain a little bit, uh, slightly wider angle lens in terms of where all this goes. So taking a step back, you know, obviously we're a couple decades into this transition to sort of a, a digital 
fraud and identity stack and trying to solve this digital identity crisis. Looking forward a bit, where do you sort of see this space evolving? I mean, obviously, it's highly competitive. You are involved in that competition, although taking a slightly different strategy, which I find fascinating. But like, how do you see that adjusting over time? How do you see sort of banks and fintech companies getting their arms around this problem? Like, what do you think the the next five to 10 years will hold? Yeah, I mean, probably shaded by how I look at it, you know, myself, what we're focused on is we see a, a world of opportunity. We look at it as though the building, the infrastructure building phase is has been significant over the last 10 or 20 years. Now it's how do we operationalize and increase the effectiveness of the use of all that infrastructure? So for us in the next five to 10 years, you know, our goal is going to be to figure out how do we instrument all of that API infrastructure? How do we connect the humans on each side? We may never honestly get back to the way it was when we sat across from the desks from one another and, and seamlessly passed all these signals that we were innately built to determine at scale. But there's massive room for disruptive improvement. And our goal is going to be to get our technology out to instrument the infrastructure so that we can make better decisions, we can build better brand experiences, we can put more pressure on um, the fraudsters out there that have been running rampant for the last, you know, call it five to 10 years. Absolutely. Well, uh, better is good because I in no way want any of my comments to be construed as we have to go back to branch-based distribution. I had to go into uh, the bank branch for my local bank to send a wire. And um, yeah, it was it was a little rough of an experience. So um, <laughs> making it better without dragging us into the past, I think, is exactly the, the right goal. And I, I agree about the sort of modernization of all of this infrastructure. I think that's such a such a good way to look at it. Last question. Reflecting back on the journey and on, you know, some of the hard challenges, right, waiting for outcome data and waiting to prove out the value of the model and sort of figuring out a different way to go to market and a way to think about how to present your capabilities to banks and fintech companies, all these sort of hard problems that you've spent a lot of time on. I'm wondering what advice would you give to fintech founders or operators who are maybe a little earlier in their journey, maybe in those first couple steps where they're still trying to figure that out. They're trying to figure out like how to build a differentiated product, how to sustain that competitive differentiation, and, and even just like how to build out their organizations and like who to hire next. And like what, if you kind of reflect back on your experience and some of the things you've learned, what would be some pieces of advice that you would share? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was run run as fast as you can. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, uh, you know, you, you mentioned do hard things uh, earlier, the value of doing hard things. Um, I think rapid iteration is probably the most valuable thing that you can do when you combine rapid iteration with rapid value demonstration. I think you start to get a really powerful combination and when you can combine those two things together and look at things, I'd say probably the biggest shift, if I were ever to do another company again, I would do product-led from the very beginning, which allows you to iterate, which forces you to deliver aha moments right out of the gate. It makes you deliver value before you receive value. That's 180 degrees from you know classic traditional enterprise sales models. So I think for founders, I would you know hire the best and brightest product leaders 
hire, been there, done that talent that has the confidence that they can visualize and demonstrate value early out of the gate. And then find customers that will iterate. You have to be able to find innovators that are willing to try something that's not status quo to where they'll give you, um, you know, access to their customer base so that you can kind of vet out where you're going to go. But I think more focus on really putting the product and the initial value and, and the iteration phase, that should be a cycle that I think could really cut down the amount of time that everybody takes to get to market and in some cases where their companies either make it at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it sounds like it's both a function of, and I love the word demonstrate uh, and demonstrate value because in your guys' case, literally you're talking about we have to have something we can show and we have to be able to help them visualize the impact this is having and what it tells them about their population of consumers and prospects that they're dealing with. And then also having a receptive audience, right? That like is excited to see that. And I imagine that you know it when you feel it, when there's a really good sort of synergy in a meeting where suddenly the client is standing up and going, what about this? Or can we go in this direction? So Mm -hmm. I guess in some cases, it's probably something more that you know it when you have it and you can feel it, but it sounds like getting to that sooner is probably the biggest piece of advice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's put the product under more pressure internally than your customer could put it externally. Oh my God, that's a great way to put it. And I will leave us there. That's a great quote. Um, Jack Alton, thank you so much for joining us on the FinTech Factor. You bet. Thank you, Alex. Had a ball. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more secrets to stand out in our crowded industry, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to hear the next episode first. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? I'll see you next time.